I'm Spencer Levy, and this is The Weekly Take. On this episode, we share time with three guests from around the world to talk about an emerging sector that's changing the way people share residential space. It's a potential revolution in renting known as co-living. It means purpose-built, at-scale developments in cities that can accommodate a growing need for more attainable dwellings and for those seeking authentic and connected communities. That's Adina David in London. She's the Director of Flexible Housing for Greystar, a global leader in rental housing. What we're seeing is a breaking down of traditional boundaries between where we work and where we live and what we do in each of those places. And that's Joe Winchester, who also joins us from London. As CBRE's Executive Director of Student Accommodation, Valuation, and Advisory, Joe specializes in student housing and co-living projects throughout Europe. From the investor's perspective, you know, it's really about that underlying fundamental demand for the space, and they can clearly see that demand as well. So I definitely think that we're going to see more activity and more investors looking for exposure. And that's Tom Moffat, a CBRE Executive Managing Director and Head of Capital Markets Asia. Based in Hong Kong, Tom covers cross-border transactions all across the region. Our conversation will paint a picture of this new wave in the rental market. We'll talk about spaces and services, demographics, design, and development. We'll look at how the pandemic has created challenges, but also some compelling conditions for a real estate trend like this and more. Thanks for joining our community for a conversation about communal housing. Co-living, that's right now on The Weekly Take. Welcome to The Weekly Take, and I'm delighted to be joined by one of our friends and clients, Adina David. Adina, welcome. Hi, Spencer. Thank you. We're also joined in the UK by Joe Winchester. Joe, thanks for joining us. Hi, thank you. And of course, Tom Moffat, joining us from Hong Kong. Tom, thank you. My pleasure, Spencer. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for coming, everybody. So let's start with you, Adina. Adina, as I mentioned, co-living is a relatively new trend in multifamily, but it's growing rapidly. Why don't you help us define what exactly is co-living? It is an emerging segment of the market. Within Graystar, we actually refer to it as urban living, And we do see it as having evolved from many other emerging concepts within rental housing globally. This is an evolving segment within rental housing. Uh, It is aimed primarily at single person households living in cities to provide a more attainable, uh, you know, dwelling type with an activated sense of community and uh, convenience added to that. So um, you get a private unit to yourself, but also the ability to interact with lots of other people around you, um, as well as you know, work near your place of residence in a large city. I've described co-living or urban living as senior housing for young people because they have small units, but big common areas. Is that a fair way to put it, or am I simplifying it too much, Adina? I think you are maybe oversimplifying it, (laughs) Uh, but um, it is meant to be all-inclusive. We do see this product as appealing most to young professionals, but really being um, completely open to the market. And actually, we've seen many examples in the market of it being truly intergenerational. Joe, you've been a valuation veteran for many years. Why don't you tell us how you go about looking at co-living arrangements or urban living, to use Adina's word. See that, Adina? I'm using your terminology now. 
Really appreciate it. You betcha. How do you value a co-living arrangement versus a traditional multifamily development? A very good question. Co-living or urban living is the latest bed sector to now be traded in the UK. We've had a student accommodation market being traded here for well in excess of 10 years. And multifamily has opened up in the UK in the last five or six years. So we have a context where bed sectors have been traded for some time. And it's our house view that co-living concepts would sit in that established range of yields, basically. And that is how we look at it for predominantly long-stay schemes. Obviously, if there's an element of short-stay, we would treat that slightly differently. But that, in principle, is how we look at it. Well, Joe, let me push you on that a little bit, if I could. Because there are distinctions, putting aside the structural differences between multifamily and co-living, where the units in co-living tend to be smaller, uh, you tend to have more common areas, you also have a slightly different lease structure in many cases. And that lease structure might be shorter term, and you also might have more corporate users that take big blocks of space. How might that impact your valuation of a co-living arrangement? Well, I think that long income is kind of the core income in co-living. What we've seen over the last year is that corporate demand has been impacted by COVID, actually. And this is because office buildings are not intensively occupied at the moment and overseas travel has been affected by COVID as well. So what we've seen is is the short-term income becoming a less important part and the long-stay income being the core attraction for investors. We have also developed a kind of hybrid model. So you have one set of drivers and then you get to a kind of blended value with the two income streams. And that is an approach that we also adopt. But there are many operational models out there in the market and we have to look at them all individually based on their location and you know how they actually are operated in practice. Tom, you're in Hong Kong. And is it fair to say that while co-living is a relatively new concept in Asia, Asia, specifically Hong Kong, Singapore, and some other extraordinarily high-density cities have been living with smaller multifamily units for quite some time and maybe as a forerunner to co-living. What do you think, Tom? I mean, people are definitely used to living in smaller apartments in the major cities. The interesting thing is that if you're talking about really institutional multifamily product. Japan is the only market that it exists in today. Um, and most of the residential and the other markets is owned by individuals. Having said that, a lot of the big investors that we work with across Asia Pacific are US headquartered or European headquartered. And they've had a huge amount of success with multifamily in the US and in European markets. So they're looking for ways that they can replicate that within Asia. And if you see a market like Hong Kong where traditional multifamily doesn't really exist, but co-living um, you know, really makes a lot of sense because of the affordability issues here. There's a lot of appetite just in getting exposure in some way to rental housing products. So it's almost like the local market has skipped that multifamily section and, and going straight into co-living from the investor's perspective. Adina, I want to dig deeper into painting a picture. What exactly does co-living or urban living units look like and how does it differ by country? So be specific, types of amenities, sizes of the rooms, 
those types of things. It will vary uh, geographically, and sometimes it is due to market regulations around what uh, you need to provide for residential buildings. You may know in the U.S., 100% of new build rental housing projects have to have uh, units that have a bathroom and a kitchen that is fully wheelchair accessible. That's not always true in every market. And again, every market will have its quirks. So um, we do, you know, look to work within those regulations, but we have made the units uh, for our kind of product typologies quite efficient and compact for their markets to really drive affordability per unit. Outside the unit, we aim to provide a whole lot more uh, amenity space that is really activated beyond what you may know from more conventional multifamily uh, and even student housing projects. Really activating and, and getting our resident members to engage with each other and really build that long-term community. So we've expanded the offering outside the unit to include things like communal kitchens, um, places where you know people can actually get together and cook together. Uh, we've expanded productivity space. So that's you know your typical co-working workspace areas. We really think remote working was a happening trend, but it's been accelerated by the pandemic, and it will only continue to grow. I think. And then, of course, other leisure areas and health and wellness areas uh, are, are really important for these. But I would say the overall space offering is much more generous, but it is combined or complemented with expanded activities and experiences for the people who live in the community. But we are also looking to open it up to folks who don't live in the community and want to access the spaces that we you know, provide. How big is the average co-living unit? Just what's the, what's your, your private, average size? Private space. I would say it's somewhere between 300 and 400 square feet on a global scale. That would be the average. Right. And then if uh, I would just, for benefit of our listeners or, or Joe, maybe you could answer, what's the average size of a typical multifamily unit? About 1,000? In the UK, residential studios in C3 residential use would start at 37 square meters upwards. Obviously, one-bedroom apartments are something like 500 square feet in London and two bedroom are 650 square feet or 700 square feet. By comparison, a co-living unit in London, they typically start at around 18 to 20 square meters upwards. So the private spaces in London would be quite small, but we're tending to see communal spaces on a ratio of around five to six square meters per room. And just for the benefit of our American listeners, having gone through the square meter to square feet conversion many times before, you multiply all of Joe's numbers by nine and you get to the square feet equivalent of that. So a 20 square foot unit would be 180 square feet. I was just going to jump in quickly on one more point. And I think in the U.S., we tend to think of conventional multifamily as averaging upwards of 600 square feet a unit. And then, you know, anything below that sort of falls into your more micro or compact unit space. Well, well, Tom, what are typical sizes of units of traditional multifamily and maybe co-living in Asia? Yeah, it sort of depends a little bit on the market, but Tokyo and Hong Kong would probably be two of the smaller markets. You know, I would say that for a one-bedroom apartment, 200 square feet to kind of 350 square feet is not unusual in those markets. Um, you could go up to, in Hong Kong, 
you know, five to 600 square feet um, for a lot of families, but that would be with uh, a number of people that were, were living in the space. So the, the co-living product, you know, it's typically probably 100 to 200 square feet um, room configuration. But as Adina mentioned, that sort of community aspect, um, I think is really the attractive feature and there's a trade-off for the private space that people are in and, and then everything else that comes along with that. And I think when, you know, I've seen the properties here that work really well, um, it's the physical um, amenity and then also the events that the operators organise, um, you know, the branding, and it almost becomes a sort of an aspirational product. So I think that you know, people are willing to trade a little bit of, of that size for, for the other benefits that come with it. Let me ask the difficult question right now. I think the number one question in real estate right now has to do with the future of cities, the challenges of high density uses. And when I hear about co-living, it says high density to me in 10 different ways from the unit to the common areas or otherwise. So Adina, at the present, how are you and Graystar dealing with the pandemic-related issues to density? And what do you see of any long-term changes as a result? Operationally, uh, you know, we have um, implemented a few measures across our portfolios um, to manage the communities and, you know, obviously prioritize the safety of our residents. However, we have seen people staying in cities or um, if they move, they move from city to city. So we do really believe in the city long term. You know, we still see it as the place where um, employment is still predominantly anchored. You, you can't really have innovation, team building and keeping up morale uh, in large companies without in-person interaction. So um, we, you know, long term, we do still believe in um, cities and we are looking for sites in city centers. Well, I guess the question is a little bit different than that. The long term question is, will there be any changes in co-living amenities, size of spaces or otherwise as a result of the pandemic? I think co-living or urban living does provide enough, you know, sort of space to stay in your private area, as well as benefit from social interaction. I think with the pandemic, we've seen loneliness and social isolation on the rise, especially for single person households. So again, I believe that density is not an issue for these developments and actually helps people stay connected and sane in um, situations like this. That's what we've seen and what we believe will be the future. I mean, we, we will be making some small tweaks to uh, our developments in terms of, again, expanding the productivity areas and co-working offering uh, in terms of contactless access to the buildings. But I don't see density as being an issue. One of the trends that has given rise to co-living is a long-term trend towards urbanisation, urban employment, people moving from rural areas to live in cities. And one of the implications of that is that the housing market has not kept pace, giving rise to huge housing shortages. And this is something that we've talked about in our recent co-living research report. What that means, I think that this is a very long-term trend. I think that it would take quite a lot for that to be completely reversed. One of the things I think it's inevitable that some people 
will elect to move out of big cities, but I don't think that that will be a wholesale trend. I think that, you know, some people, probably the majority are going to stay. One other observation I would make is that the nature of office buildings is changing. So they may be in the future, perhaps slightly less intensively occupied, but um, CBRE in London is actually going through a complete reimagining of our headquarters and it's being completely redesigned with well-being spaces, healthy food outlets on site, um, much greater flexibility of co-working spaces and so on um, to enable collaboration and this is very similar to what we're seeing in the co-living market. I think that what we're seeing is a breaking down of traditional boundaries between where we work and where we live and what we do in each of those places. I think that co-living has unique appeal. I think it is an innovative solution for single people, single person households that other forms of rental accommodation just don't cater to as well. So let's go into affordability. And affordability is something that I think in Asia in particular uh, is extraordinarily important in Hong Kong and Singapore, and certainly in high-density cities uh, like Tokyo. So, Tom, how is affordability driving the demand from both the consumer perspective and from the investor perspective for more co-living units in Asia? I mean, it's a little bit different in each market, but Hong Kong, um, you know, I think is the most expensive housing market in the world, and it's been an issue that's been um, sort of causing a lot of the social unrest over the, the past 12 months or so. Um, so it's definitely driving demand for the product. And the interesting thing, if you look at co-living here, um, there are expats who are living in the, the product, but there's a high proportion as well of people from the local community that are moving in as a sort of a first home outside of their family home, and even in some cases moving in as a, a couple pre-marriage um, to be able to get privacy and, and some more affordability. So I think that trend is, is definitely going to continue in this market. The residential sector for sale has continued to be very resilient. Um, and, you know, I think that's going to continue. I think from the investor's perspective, you know, it's really about the underlying fundamental demand for the space and they can really see that demand as well. Um, so I, I definitely think that we're going to see more activity and more investors looking for exposure. Now, Adina, let's talk about one of your projects, if you don't mind. You have a terrific project in Amsterdam called Our Domain. It's award-winning. I think it won the, quote, best new shared living development. Uh, tell us about that. And uh, also talk about the fact that the Netherlands uh, tends to have a somewhat more stringent regulatory environment and how you were able to make that project work uh, within that environment. That one's a really special project. Our domain in southeast Amsterdam opened up this summer and uh, it has about 1,500 units. It is a mixed-use uh, project in that it does have student units as well as um, young professional units as well as more conventional uh, type units uh, within the same development and it has come together in a community that was traditionally more of an office park. So um, it really brought kind of new life into an area. You're right to, to point out the Netherlands do have a regulatory environment that's quite specific. 
and uh, it has resulted in some uh, interesting, you know, di different types of thinking about managing the uh, project overall. But um, what we've seen was, you know, again, we opened during the pandemic this summer and uh, it leased up almost immediately. So the student and young professional units went um, immediately. I mean, I think we're at close to 90% occupancy on this project, again, open during the pandemic. Um, so it's been a very successful project, I think welcomed because of uh, the diversified offer there. And um, you did point out the, the regulated units, they have helped the uh, project kind of gain occupants early on, secure, you know, the initial tenancies and create that initial community that then attracts even more people to it. Yeah, it's a really interesting project. I was actually stunned, Adina, when you said you had 1,500 units in your uh, job in Amsterdam, which is an enormous number of units for a typical multifamily building. We like scale. <laughs> scale is good if you can get it. If you can get the, uh, get the units in there, go for it. But my question is this, given the shortage of the number of units out there, given how high density all the cities that we're talking about from Amsterdam to London to Beijing to Tokyo are, is conversion an option? Taking some of these very same struggling hotels or other types of real estate uses, can they be converted to co-living? Adina, what do you think? I think there are a lot of opportunities to do that. For Graystar, at least, it does come down to scale. And uh, obviously, that does change market to market. If you know we were to look at hotels, we need a hotel that already has 300 plus rooms in which we can add kitchenettes to and um, you know reposition then the communal areas. And oftentimes, it gets a little more expensive than we would like. So it's an option but it's probably not the most efficient one. In a lot of the markets where we looked at office conversions, you know, a lot of the projects that do work for conversion, I think have already been converted, uh, again, at scale. Um, it's certainly an option, but again, with offices, you need to look at how deep the floor plate is. Does it really lend itself well to residential units, uh, which need daylight in sort of a more narrow, less deep, um, space. So uh, it really depends on the building. Um, we're not really looking at conventional multifamily moving into co-living. We think that just creates more operational complexities and, you know, maybe on kind of isolated cases, but again, not really a scale play. Um, we do really like modular construction. We do like um, building ground up using modular technology, and we think that unlocks uh, projects and brings them forward very quickly. Tom, let me stay on the same question. Uh, are you seeing any conversions throughout Asia to co-living arrangements from hotels, office, or otherwise? Yeah, no, 100%. That's really the play here in Hong Kong. And when you were asking the question, I was thinking back even pre-COVID, um, and I think all of the product here has been converted um, you know, rather than being purpose-built. Adina mentioned some of the planning issues and you know, obviously the, the building needs to be able to be reconfigured, but it's, it's the route that most people have taken and it's been a mixture of some offices, but um, predominantly hotels and existing residential buildings that have been converted. If you think about Hong Kong as a market, it's so reliant on inbound tourism and inbound business travellers 
And even for the second half of last year, pre-COVID, the city was you know, largely shut down to a lot of, of travellers because of the protests. So the hotel market um, is the one part that's really been hurting. And if you look at some of the prices now versus 12 months ago to acquire hotels, you, know, you can buy them at a, a 30% discount. So that that's definitely a play that a lot of people are pursuing. Uh, I think the other thing that's appealing, if you can do that here, it's a relatively short period from acquisition to be able to um, start generating income and, and certainly much quicker than demolishing and, and building brand new buildings. So that's the other thing that, that's attractive about it. Let's turn to that topic now, the ESG topic, which is now a, a new buzzword, but it's an enormous amount of capital that uh, is growing in the space. As a matter of fact, I was on the phone the other day with an investor and they were saying that they expect that right now there's about two, $300 billion of, dollars of ESG capital out there. It could grow to $5 trillion by the end of the decade. So Tom, let's start in Asia and then we'll go around the horn. How important is ESG capital today uh, to the overall capital markets and specifically in the multifamily context? Tom. It's becoming more important, sort of led um, predominantly by the, the US investors, but it's at a very different standard, I would say, than sort of Western markets, you know, to the extent that in places like Japan, there are, are different energy ratings and, and you don't have the same sort of global standard about the, the physical product. You know, it's becoming more of a discussion, but I, I would say it's not a driving force for the majority of investors. In the UK, ESG is a bit more than a buzzword. Um, it's actually central to most investors' strategies now. And co-living ticks a lot of ESG boxes. So on the environmental front, it can be built to high energy efficient standards. It lends itself to modular, which reduces wastage on site, for example. The S, social, it's possible to create diverse communities. There can be affordable rents and affordable housing contributions in London, which are very welcome. And it's also catering to the well-being agenda. Um, so it's possible to prove an S factor for ESG in a way that other real estate sectors struggle. And actually a strong risk management response to COVID-19, for example, would count as a good governance factor. So co-living really does tick a lot of ESG boxes, which is one of its attractions for investors. I think ESG is very important. And as an institutional uh, manager, you know, we, we obviously take it very seriously um, and are very influenced by our investors uh, globally. But because we are global, um, we can share best practices and quickly implement them, you know, across our platforms we are certainly looking at adding in new technologies that make our buildings more sustainable. We've already talked about uh, modular construction, um, environmental benefits of that, uh, but we're seeing lots of other influences, again, at a global scale. But let me bring up one more issue here with respect to the investment question uh, as it relates to uh, demand. And when I say demand, I mean demand for subletting some of these uh, co-living units or multifamily units through third-party groups like Airbnb, VRBO, Bungalow, and other short-term rental companies. How does Graystar, how do you look at it from a co-living standpoint, Adina? 
So we actually quite like Airbnb um, and we do allow it in our buildings or support it in some of our buildings where it is allowed by the local market. So it is a bit market specific in that some markets are really against it, um, but where we can offer um, that as a, we sort of see it as an additional service to our residents. Tom, let me ask you the question. How deep uh, has uh, Airbnb, VRBO, Bungalow, or other sublet services for um, uh, multifamily uh, penetrated the different Asian markets? Yeah, I mean, Airbnb has been the group that's had the most traction and they've sort of faced challenges, um, regulatory in some markets, and then also I think some resistance from residents within the building. So um, I've, I've certainly seen the product, but never in institutional um, or institutionally owned assets. It's always in you know, units that are, are privately owned. So I, I don't sort of see it being part of the co-living offering in Hong Kong, um, you know, in particular. And um, the buildings here, you know, I think with the sort of security and, and access and things like that, it, it would be very hard to do it um, without the support of the operators. So let's wrap this up now with some final thoughts, some crystal ball questions. Joe, let's start with you. What does your 2021-2022 outlook look like? for the co-living space? Are we going to see a lot more of it, more demand? What's your point of view? I think that co-living definitely has its market and its innovative way of catering for um, single-person households. And I think it's offering a modern and safe alternative to traditional flat shares. And so in my opinion, I think it's only going to grow. Tom, your final thoughts. You know, d- definitely market specific, but I think there's more demand for the product. Um, we're going to see more growth from the residents and, and then also demand from investors. Um, the other point just to make in a market like Hong Kong, you know, when you don't have institutional multifamily, the alternative is to lease from individuals. And I think one of the attractive things is to have a professional operator to have the security, to have consistent billing, maintenance, things like that. Um, we, we didn't touch on it, but I, I think that's a, another one of the reasons that it's it's going to continue to be popular and, and more popular. Let me just push that just a little bit. You started today's conversation suggesting that the, the only market that has any type of scale uh, in institutional multifamily and or co-living is Japan. Does your crystal ball foresee markets like Hong Kong, markets uh, within uh, broader China, um, having more co-living over the next several years? I think so. And, and just to be clear, Japan has a, a very large institutional multifamily market, but it, it hasn't really embraced co-living. Um, co-living so far has been in markets like Hong Kong and, and Shanghai, and I think particularly where you see um, the, the biggest affordability issues. So uh, I think those markets are going to continue to grow. And, and you will see it um, you know, in markets like Japan and, and potentially um, Korea in, in the future. Um, but I think places like Hong Kong and Shanghai are going to continue to be the most active bases. Great. And Adina, last thoughts to you. What does your crystal ball look like for the next couple of years for co-living throughout Europe? Uh, is it going to blossom and where? We're very excited for the next couple of years for this product uh, globally, not just in Europe. You know, we have several sites secured, again, in global markets around the world. So uh, as soon as we have more of that product operational, I think it's going to be really exciting to unlock even more of it. Um, and, uh, you know, we're really looking to scale it up uh, as quickly as possible. As You know, I think once 
renters see the quality and evolution of the product, uh, it will be really embraced around the world. So we're very excited about it. Great. Well, on behalf of the Weekly Take, I want to thank our three guests. First, Adina David, Director of Flexible Housing at Graystar. Adina, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much. It's been really great. Second, I want to thank Joe Winchester, CBRE's Head of Co-Living Valuations, based in London. Joe, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. And last but not least, Tom Moffat, Executive Managing Director of Capital Markets Asia for CBRE. Thank you for joining us, Tom. My pleasure, Spencer. Thank you. To learn more about today's topic, read CBRE's new co-living report. You can find it on our website, along with more information on our show. Check out cbre.com slash the weekly take. We'd also love your feedback. So if you found us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or another platform, please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, I'm Spencer Levy. Be smart, be safe, be well. Be well.